And I never talk about like the gear. I don't give a flying fuck what we used. I couldn't even tell you half the shit we used. Who cares? It's it's just crap. I can tell you about like Jim Atkins, the former, you know, the former director of special activities division that was one of two guys that were fired for Iran Contra that I got to work in Sulaimania with for two years. I can tell you about that guy. I can tell you how cool that motherfucker was. I can tell you that, you know, he was a Mac V saw guy back in the day. He was like an SF guy. He was a Vietnam guy. He went to work for the agency. I, I can tell you, you know, the story about how they ran out of, you know, bombs. So they loaded a bunch of cows in a plane and were dropping fucking cows on commies in South America. That's cool. Beef bomb. Beef bomb. <laughs> That's cool. The Black Rifle Podcast starts now. Man. Married to the job. Married to the job. Seeger? Is that a brand? Yeah. Or are you just like Bob Seeger? No, it's a brand. I like how they make like hats and like Western wear stuff. It's fucking, it's a pretty fucking solid name. Yeah, right. I like me some Zach Bryan, dude. Yeah? Yeah. He was a fucking Navy vet. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he was in the Navy. His whole family uh, was in the Navy, and he was planning on being in the fucking Navy for 20, and then was one of those weird cases where he just posted a fucking random clip of him playing acoustic and singing to the internet, and it fucking blew up. Huh. Wow. I didn't know that. That's cool. What do you want to talk about? What do you got? What do you got your notes on? What are you doing? Uh, I don't know. I feel like we have, uh, you know, we did... Uh, BRCC presents on you, but like that story's been, that was kind of oh. like a precursory thing. And I was like, man, of all the conversations I've had with you, what was some stuff that I like really stuck out to me and what it like would be interesting to delve into. And I was thinking, um, like you, you joined the military in 1995, right? Yeah. 95. 95. So like, you know, the military back then was vastly different than what, I was in, you know, I came in in the middle of the GWAT. Pretty different, pretty different, different type yeah, atmosphere, yeah. you know. Um, but it was funny because it's so easy to get like 20 years of war. Um, and plus, it just seems like every day now that like you see somebody talking about how World War Three is going to start at any moment. I feel like yeah. we've been living in that for, for the a last while. 12 months yeah, yeah. or something like that. But I, was re I remember you telling me about um, what your workup was like right before the invasion where you were like, you were down in, you were in the Philippines or something like that. Yeah. We were in the Philippines and we were, we did this, um, we did an entire train up in right off this coast of Kuwait in this place called Falaka Island. Falaka Island. Yeah. It was this deserted resort town. And so we got the entire town to just blow up and basically that uh, we, we got to do anything we wanted. So you well, could. Did you know like what yeah, yeah. that was the next few months was going to be like for you? Like what, what were you told going into that? <clears throat> well, originally the buildup was we're going, we don't know when. So you're just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting and then you're just training. So we were training the Kuwaitis because there was discussion as to whether or not the Kuwaitis were going to go north so we were training with them or training them technically. Um, and 
you go in and out of briefings and meetings and you get an Intel dump and then you go train, you know, you'd do a few days in the desert. So you do like long range movements and you come back, do some shoot house stuff and you go like go out to Falaka. So you did everything from like, you know, um, how to cook and eat a camel. How to like, cook and eat a camel? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We fucking fucking <laughs> cooked cooked a camel. You ate <laughs> yeah. camel? It was delicious too. Yeah, yeah. It was delicious. It was well, delicious. Do you eat the neck? Uh like, I what? mean it's it's just like any other animal you would like quarter up and eat. Uh you know, it's probably more familiar for those in the audience of eating a lot of horse. You know, I'm sure there's you a, lot. a lot of people that eat horse. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of horse eaters. <laughs> yeah. uh, it uh, we we made some kind of stew out of it. So you had like you know you you quartered it up and you know cut the back straps out of it and like literally went to went to eat it. And um, we made a stew. I remember I was like, man, this is delicious. And um, and past that, like those workups, I mean training the, the Kuwaitis have like incredible things because they're an oil rich country with a fairly consolidated and advanced military. Um, so they have indoor long range shooting ranges that are like, you know, guys coming out and bringing you like espresso shots and, what? and Oh yeah, it's wild, dude. It's like, it's like five star, it's like going to a four seasons shooting range where <laughs> the, the dudes that are in the military are a bunch of, um, well, it, they are, uh, they're essentially royalty. And the, so the Kuwaiti special operations guys are treated as royalty and their obstacle courses, their ranges, their shoot house, everything, everything was just like five star. And, they were also so culturally different for so many different reasons, which was, um, you know, they were like trying to barter or, or buy like our Humvees. And you're like, we, we, we don't sell United States military equipment. It's very illegal. Like we can't they just do thought that. Everything was for sale. Yeah. It's just like everything's for sale. Hey, how much you want for that Humvee? I'm like, yeah, I can't sell that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, E6, like, I can't sell our Humvee. Like, God, I wish. That'd be fucking sick. Um, and, or their, um, their, uh, I guess they're a little bit disconnected from reality because they are such a wealthy country with such a consolidated amount of resources. And then their special operations guys are treated like, royalty a lot of them are probably part of the kuwaiti royal family in some way or shape one way shape or form were some so, of the guys that you were working with around during desert storm yeah 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 you you talked to those guys about how you know the iraqis had come across into kuwait and and um uh, they're they're not a preeminent fighting force well you know they're not hard we'll just say that <laughs> they're not like hard dudes in general they're not like uh i'm sure there are some but they're they're not known for their um discipline we'll say yeah. they're, they're very wealthy spoiled they kind of you know 
run on their own time standards. You know, not a lot of like real hard times, not a lot of really hard work that goes into their training regimen. Um, so I think they always kind of realized, or at least their, their military and the, their, their executive leadership or their presidential, uh, well, their royal leadership realized that Big Brother was probably going to bail them out. Yeah. Meaning us. Yeah. But we, we didn't. We, you know, we, but we did a bunch of stuff with those guys. Like we fast roped and fucking, you know, did CQB and a bunch of other really fun stuff. And then when we, when we did get to go out on this island, it was really fucking fun because then you could kind of, flex your internal muscle see exactly what what things can do like you know what's a not a lot of us really get the opportunity to have like an entire city where you can shoot through walls or you know blow buildings up or what whatever you want like it's just here's this this city and and basically the way that it was abandoned was i'll get the story right um the Iraqis, when they went across the border, these people had fled off the off the island, and then when the military came back in, they reclaimed the island, but they never really let it go back to being like, like a, a resort. resort. No, they they just owned it from that point forward. Um, it was cool. It was like the first really cool thing. But most of the the training that we had done was probably. Like it was, it was just not the right type of training. Like you did, you know, CQB at that point was a lot of it was um, it really built on hostage rescue. It really wasn't built on small unit tactics. Mm. So for the special operations, it would follow more of a tier one you know, Delta Force type of template when they were training and applying CQB. Um, so then you had to modify your SOPs fairly rapidly because you realized like they were, you're carrying too much shit. Like one, you're just carrying too much shit. I think I carried like 12 mags, two frags. Um, you know, you'd have your like gloves and night vision goggles and a fucking camelback and like all, all this shit, you know, and you're like hundred plus degrees and you're like trying to work and you're just exhausted. You're also in peak physical condition. Like, okay, so we got to start trimming the fat here because this isn't working. So well, one of that was like, that was an eye-opening experience of like, we just have too much shit. And you're in, you're out. Right? It's not like, you're not like going out from and away from your vehicles for extended periods of time. It's not like Afghanistan where you're on a long, you know, a long patrol in the mountains. You've got vehicles. Yeah. You're fucking, you're doing everything off your vehicles for the most part. And you knew that going into it <clears throat> before the invasion that you were going to be mostly vehicle mounted. And oh yeah, I got to imagine that's got to be a really good like mindset to have yourself in leading up to some of that, where they're really giving you the freedom to be like, "Hey, see what happens." Like, pee for plenty it up, yeah. and just go to town by destroying a town <laughs> and see what happens. Because like you have no idea, you have no idea. You have like you're on the precipice of something that the United States hasn't done in for decades yeah decades and, i mean and you are all of a sudden like oh shit like we're if if we're got to be ready for this we have no idea what we're going to be doing and how it's going to play out like we gotta you gotta i imagine you, you specifically like your creativity 
for like, hey, let's just kind of like play around with stuff was probably just amplified to a to an nth degree. I think a lot of us were like that because you know you think back or I think back on it. You know, my team leader was only he had I think he graduated college in ninety seven, so I think it was twenty six. So that would put him, you know, he was only we'll, we'll say thirty one. You know, yeah. and he was the boss. Like it was just one ODA, like, and we were tasked out to um, uh, the CIA for that. So we were, we were opcon to them. And he was the boss. He's 31 years old. Well, he was a big kid. Like, he was probably operating looser than everybody there. Yeah. Like, he didn't give a fuck. Like, it was great. So we were, we had a lot of room to test and a lot of imagination. Yeah. How, yeah. how do you do you remember how that played out as far as like you guys getting tasked out to the CIA right out of the gate? Uh, yeah, we 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 had so interesting. Like a lot of his a lot of its personal relationships and then ultimately like not personal relationships, but it's personal relationships and yeah. You know, so they kind of kicked the tires on who was available and then we knew a, a guy over there which I think he might still be over there, so I can't say his name. And my team leader was in the army with them. They were in first group mm -hmm. together. So he's like, tap, tap. Yeah. Let's go with you. And then they put in a specific request. And then we were like, hip, hip, hooray. Yeah, I was like really, really young. I didn't, I truly didn't understand how a lot of that shit was put together either way. Like they would start talking and be like, I barely know what. Yeah departments you know what s shops are i'm like well, i don't know I'm like, cool sounds cool to me like and it's it's a fucking mess i mean there's dudes everywhere and vehicles and you don't know who's who yeah you know like who's doing what where like you know fifth groups over here agency over here the marines over here 101st like everybody's staging getting ready and you're like going from different positions logistically because you're trying to not only sort out a plan, but also, okay, how is this whole thing going to work? Um, and most of the time I was just kind of there, you know, like window, were, window licking, were, were doing you a, a hard, yeah, during, yeah, during yeah, 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 yeah. Just driving. I drove, I drove a lot, man. Uh, I drove a lot. I drove, uh, I got a lot of windshield time, like going north. And uh, well, we were, went ahead of um, 101st. Um, with a plan to link up with um, the agency guys in Najaf. So we kind of like peeled off in Najaf just north of what's called a town card called Karbala, Karbala Gap. And um, once we peeled off, went with those guys, things kind of got, things got really weird then. Because then you're like, man, I... I really don't know what's going on because they, the agency operates, operates in such secrecy either way. You yeah. don't know. Yeah. I mean, me six, seven, right. I'm like, everybody at the agency is wearing like jeans and fucking plate carrier and like, you know, smoking cigarettes and you, you don't you know where, where, where were these guys before? You have no idea. You don't know. Like you just know, like these dudes are like the cool kids, in the entire school, right? Like they're the coolest because they got like 
tricked out fucking vehicles and fucking cool gear and they can do kind of whatever they want. They didn't, it didn't seem like they had a lot of rules, but really that was just an optics thing. It was just an optics thing because they don't have to tell you anything and they wouldn't tell you anything. It was like, you just know it's Joe, right? Or John yeah. or, you know, Jake or like, yeah. <laughs> like, and you know, that's, you know, that's not their name. You know, that's not their like, they're just like, hey, I'm John or whomever. And you're like, what? Okay, well, this is like the 10th John. And pretty soon you're like, oh, wait, you're all, okay, that's not their real name. And like, I, and I can remember like a few times where you're like just driving out to random airfields and you're like watching like Antonovs, like helicopters and fucking or, uh, MIs and fucking Russian, Russian planes and fucking weird civilian shit all the time. You're like, what in the fuck is you know, you're in the military, you're thinking like everything is logistically supported by the military. You're used to the military. And then you're all of a sudden you have this like blended organism yeah, that acts and behaves like the military, but it doesn't look, it, it, it sounds like the military, but it doesn't look like it. It's like, they, you know, big beards and civilian clothes. And they're just like, Hey, let's go over here. Let's do this thing. Hey, can you come with us? Like, cause I was, I was at 18 Echo, so I was a comms guy, and radios are hard for most people. Yeah, I hate them. Not, not my thing. Yeah, so I, I got, I got, I got to get tapped on a bunch of fucking weird and random shit, and it was it was great because it was like, oh, Evan can go, right? Like he's not a coward. And he knows how to run a radio, so let let him go. He'll run Satcom for you. Yeah, and. <clears throat> And that, I mean, that was kind of, um, you know, like it, it's just, it's already confusing. It's already really chaotic. And then you add in the other layer of truly not understanding organizations. And then they might not even tell you. Because even if they were talking about team leader at the time, they weren't like disseminating information. They were just telling me what to do. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll go do that. I have to imagine that had like a profound effect on you and your development. Like yeah. being thrust into the fire like that, like right out of the gate. Yeah, because it was, there are things about the military that are obvious to everyone that's been in the military where you're like, these are the things I fucking hate about the military. And then you think, oh, there's an organization out there that I get to do all the things I love about the military and then also not have all the bullshit like you don't have some guy telling you that you need to shave your face when you don't even have fucking drinking water like really okay so that's probably not the best use of my water just just you know just, just sitting down and thinking about it for a minute that's probably not the best use of my water but you also like you just want to do the the job you don't want somebody 10 miles up your ass saying this is what you have to do or the way that you have to look a certain way and when you're in that 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 stew of because you had everybody right you had all the colors of the rainbow every task force every every imaginable type of special operations unit you know the seals were, were using those stupid fucking dune buggies you remember those you ever oh, seen yeah. those things yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. they're just horrible yeah. they're just like the worst platform that you could ever imagine they had like a volkswagen engine on them they they had no armor they had like you know, 50 cows on the top. They looked cool as shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. They looked cool as shit, but they were absolutely 
garbage, like under horsepower, you know, they, because you'd load them up with a bunch of gear and then they had like a fucking Volkswagen engine in them, right? Yeah. So it doesn't matter. You can't overcome that, that physics problem. They were, they were constantly getting stuck. They couldn't really carry anything. They weren't that fast. Like it was just a pile of shit, but they looked really cool. Mm. Cause you're like, oh my God, look at those things. How do we get those? And you're like, once you, once you tar, start talking to them, they're like, we will trade you right now. Yeah. <laughs> These yeah. things fucking suck. Or, you know, or MP5s, right? MP5s look like so, like they're so cool. And it's like this little gun in your, in your, in your stupid mind, you know, at 26 years old, you're not really thinking like, well, that's just a nine mil. Yeah. Like, like that's just nine imagine mil. Imagine driving through a city in with Southern a, Iraq with a- in a doom baggie with a MP5. MP5. <laughs> like what? No, yeah. absolutely not. Like you'd never do that. And you're like, we got a 50 cal on top of this thing, <laughs> yeah. but we have actually no protection when people <laughs> start shooting at this thing yeah. and we become None. the biggest target on the battlefield. Yeah. None. Now you can clearly differentiate from a friendly fire circumstance, you know, like, oh, that's probably not Haji, but like, you, you know, that's also difficult because we ran into the scenario where, third ID kept shooting up the, um, the tacos. Like we had Hiluxes that we had retrofitted and like conventional mill kept thinking those were like, and you had embed indigenous forces in Hilux vehicles. And the you know, third ID had, had ripped off a few rounds and shot those guys up a few times. I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. Let's reconsider our options here too. Yeah. Like this probably isn't the best the best vehicle for friendly fire. And I mean, to be fair, that was a huge consideration. Like once, once you realized how powerful the conventional military was in a, in a conventional military operation and how scared everybody is. And then 18 year old snuffy on a fucking 50 cal, like he's not going to waste time. He's going to just shoot him up. Yeah, like he, he doesn't think that Toyota Tacomas are on the yeah. battlefield, which I'm sure is what the enemy was driving around most of the time. Taxis too. and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, they were like using standard kind of Iraqi taxi. It was like that yellow or not yellow, uh, orange and white kind of. Yeah, it, it very well known, well yeah. well known kind of the the vehicle of choice. Yeah, they were everywhere. Those yeah. taxis were everywhere. Yeah. I think I remember you saying something about like, you know, there was that, it was at some certain point within the invasion where you were driving or something like that. And you were like, oh, I don't have to like abide by the normal rules. Oh yeah. And yeah. You understood that like, yeah. oh, there, I am now in a, in a completely different environment that I didn't even know existed before where there are no rules. Yeah. It, it was a, it was a, I think it was a very prominent turning point. I mean, there's a couple different points in there where you, you are, you already consider yourself dead. So to operate, you, you can operate freely in a way that's like, you can just deal with your own mortality, understand very clearly that if you're already dead, then they can't take something that you've already essentially psychologically taken from yourself. Yeah. And so it provides a lot of freedom to just be there and not um, worry. 
Like, I think that was a big thing. It was like, what is this going to look like? What does this, you know, it would be ridiculous for people to think that you're not on the chopping. embodied. Yeah. With well, I mean, our original Intel reports were, you know, we would take like 50, 60% KIA on the original push. That's like what their estimates were. They didn't expect it to be. Does it? huge casualty huge estimations so you're assuming that you'll either be dead or injured um and but once you turn that corner you're like okay well this is this is it i got it um then once you realize that the circumstances that you're in you kind of own all of it like the the ROE is the ROE, but it's it's much different than a fully developed war that's been around for a few years. You can your your push is to you know our primary push was like get to Baghdad, you know by hook or crook like get to Baghdad. Yeah, and we were we were just south of Baghdad. I can't remember exactly where, and I had to hop basically to the other side and move into oncoming traffic, and which is we're in counter flow is what we called it. We hadn't necessarily exercised, exercised that, but it was like, oh, rules don't apply to me. So like traffic laws don't apply, like nothing really exists. Like the building doesn't have to exist. Mm. That person doesn't have to exist. This road doesn't have to exist because I can use the road, I don't have to use the road. Like I can have the building, I don't have to have the building. Like everything here that people have artificially put in from the circumstance and, and, and it means something from a civilian perspective, organization and infrastructure, it's, you know, in Iraq, I mean, this is thousands of years old. This is a, a, a developed country with a long history and you could do whatever you wanted. And once you have that that switch where these these lines, I don't have to paint within them. I can throw this thing away and start with a blank sheet of paper mm. and I can kind of draw whatever I want. Yeah. Um psychologically, it's it's an epiphany that I don't think, of, I, I, I know, there's just not a lot of people that have ever had a circumstance that has allowed them to just operate within the realm of physics. Right. Like life or death, the only thing that really matters is like how do we organize a team and then execute effectively in an environment where you understand that projectiles fly at X amount of speed and explosives work like this. So now you're truly just, just fully immersed into the wild kingdom. Yeah. Like it's there, there doesn't have to be a building there. We can delete it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I sat in, yeah, outside of this town we were showing it and um we're just kind of watching it burn and eating pound cake as we we're listening to the watching you know the 120s and concuss and i was like 
eating a pound cake, like watching like off in the distance as his fucking city was burning. You're like, okay. And not only that, but I, I, I probably took a nap. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm probably, I might not sleep for a couple of days. So maybe I'll take, take a little shut eye here. Right. I'm just right. outside of town before we, you know, daylight. So as we go in, we might get a little bit of rest. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it's a completely different realm of existence to, to be able to operate in. And I have to imagine that that has, uh, that's the type of thing that imprints on your brain. And there's, there's no forgetting that. Do you feel yeah. like you took kind of that awareness and that knowledge of what it's like to exist without any rules outside of physics into, you know, other areas of your oh, yeah. life. It took that. me a while to understand it. Like it wasn't as if I understood that instantly. It was, it was a freedom that is, it accelerates you as a human in evolution. It's it, it, and, I, and I shouldn't say that in a in a context of like, um, no, I, I don't mean to sound like an egomaniac or something like that. It's just it uh, that experience is not something that you can buy. You can't go to Harvard. You can't be a billionaire. Like it, you can't put a price tag on that. Right. You're fully injected into an environment where you're truly in the food chain physics is the only thing that matters and you also have the power of god it there's no way it can't affect you because then you're you you start to see things in, in a totally different way from from a just a self-actualization it changes your life because you understand okay I can kind of, and it took me a while to get to this, but it was, it was, I can I can go out and do what I want, meaning I don't have to have social pressure. I don't have to have civilian artificial constructs. People can say whatever they want. They can say no, but that doesn't mean no. Like in, in that, like that didn't come out right. That probably could be taken differently. It means... Words can be essentially just exchanging hot air. Like action is the thing that matters. That's the thing that matters. Mm. Like if we're pontificating and opining about different circumstances and we're exchanging oxygen for ultimately these fucking sounds in our, in our fucking heads, that's great. But until you apply that and then you see the result and when you see the outcome of a well-executed plan and then the delivery of success, goals, and objectives in a truly chaotic environment where you don't have a script, but you're, you're applying the actual script, you're developing and executing it on the ground. Not a lot of people have ever um, had those types of experiences to know that, oh, if I come up with a plan and I'm kind of tracing it back to what, what I'm referring to. If I come up with a plan, if I have goals and objectives, a team of people, we can go out and make shit happen. Like you can just make shit happen. You can, you can build things out of the dirt. You can 
delete things out of the dirt. You can just make things happen. And it changed my life. Like it, it fundamentally changed the way that I looked at the world. It fundamentally changed my life, I think, for the better because you're living in ultimate freedom. The consequences of getting the problem wrong are death. Mm. So you're living in, in dire circumstances and the, and the consequences of your decisions will ultimately yield you the fate of fall, uh, face of, or, or let, it will lend you the, to the, um, I guess, failure would be defined as the loss of life, limb, or eyesight of either yourself or your teammates. Okay. Right. Well, a well-orchestrated plan put together with a group of highly committed individuals, man, you can accomplish just about anything you want. You can fucking make shit happen. And when I say that, it's like, I'm not oversimplifying it. I'm like, when you think about all the things that, like uh, Tosh was talking about, right? Where he's like, oh, we're going to row across the Atlantic. It's just somebody thinking about it. You still have to come up with a plan. You have to put together a team. You have to train, and then you do it. It's not impossible, but somebody has to plan it out. Somebody has to execute it. I mean, the plan's only part of it. The execution is everything, because you can plan and plan and plan. You can buy the boat. You can do all the training, but if you don't actually get in the water and row that motherfucker across the Atlantic, it never happened. It doesn't matter. It's it's a it's a fictional reality. It's like yeah. a it's like a Hemingway novel. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself in those moments of extreme chaos when you really understood that you were existing in a realm without any rules? Was did did it take you a little while to become mm. good in this chaotic environment? Yeah. Or or did you feel like you you had sort of an aptitude to be able to handle these hyper stressful situations? I think. I think I I wasn't something that you're just instantly like like I was a, a war savant or something like that. Like, like, like <laughs> it's a good term. <laughs> I, I, no, it was uh, it was it was learned. It was oh okay. There there is a there's a cadence to this. There's there's an ebb and a flow. There's there's a cycle in which happens like a in, tide of war. Yeah, in you don't, I mean, the first the first engagement, you don't really know what the fuck is going on. I'm sure you had that same experience. You're like, I am fucking lost in the sauce, man. I don't know what the fuck is going on. You're just like trying to get through it. Like, God, I hope I fucking get through this thing. And, you know, thankfully, and I mean, luck has something to do with it because you're like, God, how did we fucking do that? Like, man, by the, we, we did it. Well, if you make, if you make it, through a few of them, then you're, you get your reps in and then pretty soon you're like, okay, now I can start to think about this in a different way. I can digest a problem. Things slow down. You, know, you, you can, they're not so chaotic. They're not, they're not as fast as they were. They slow down. You can look at the problem. You can identify the threat. You can come up with a plan, but you, if you don't have your reps, it's, it's almost impossible. So I think junior guys with younger you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. I don't, you know, I was, I was a bit older. I had a fully developed brain. 
and uh, I, had a, I had a good team. Um, we were thinking about things, I think, in a different way. We just our brains were operating at a different level, not because we were better or smarter. It's just we were a little bit older, and we had a different layer of experiences that would maybe allow us to adapt a little bit faster. Um, but I wouldn't say that I, I, I don't know. I think by maybe Oh six, you know, I mean, I was in, so I did like, you know, the invasion and then I did Kirkuk, uh, Sulaimania. I did a few other like cities in there. I think by the time like Baghdad in 05 was really spicy. It was really, it was probably one of, um, the most dangerous and chaotic environments I could ever imagine. Um, it, and you had all these different factors. I mean, you had all these different defense contractors and you had, you know, the conventional mill, you had allied forces, you had all these different factors and you had, you know, the terrorists that we were pursuing. So you had, then you had civilians on the battlefield, you had all these different complexities and that in itself, just navigating like different languages and different vehicles and different logistics systems and then trying to figure out like where and how do you operate? I mean, that's just a quagmire of chaos to begin with. Yeah. But I think there's probably 06 maybe, I, I think, you know, maybe to crit by the time I was learning to crit. Um, I was just comfortable with it. Like, this is what we got to do. It's like, yeah, you're, 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 you know, going to war and operating within a war zone and doing all of the th different things that you have to do. But at the end of the day, you kind of get, um, you adapt to the circumstance. You're just living there, uh, just living there, lacing up my boots and kind of going to work every day. Like it was kind of going to work. Yeah. And was there a point where you kind of acknowledge that within yourself where you're like, Oh, this is, this is uh, me in a cadence of stuff. And, and I've become accustomed to a certain way of existing. And Yeah. I think, I, I think it's it, yes and no. I, I never, I never looked at it as I was really changing. Like I never really quite understood that I was changing. Um, but I did, you know, and you have, you have little bouts of, of things that you're dealing with, especially when you come home for a few weeks or whatever that might be, where um, I didn't need adrenaline all the time. That's not, that wasn't my thing. I wasn't like seeking it. I wasn't going out and, 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 uh, and, you know, doing a bunch of like very risky things per se. But I mean, I'd always done things that were adrenaline based because it was interesting and I was pr in preparation to going to war, like whether I liked whitewater kayaking or climbing or whatever it was, it was like, I like being outside. I like working hard. I like doing things that are adrenaline based, yeah. complex problem solving, split decision-making where the consequences are, 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 um, injury yeah. or death. Like those are things that are interesting to me. So like, I liked mountaineering. I liked whitewater kayaking. I liked fucking climbing. I liked all that, but it wasn't close to the complex problem solving that you would do in a war zone. Like climbing is a different, totally different endeavor. You know, um, 
and I just felt more comfortable, I guess, in those places. I, I for a long time, I just felt more comfortable. Then, I, then I kind of you 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 kind of go up, and then you have um, you know, there's a bell curve of adaptability, and okay. and then on the other side of that is complacency because of the comfort. Mm. And, and how do you fucking walk that line? Uh, I mean, it is logical and you have to like keep putting yourself back into the moment and then you have to dedicate it. So if you're not dedicated to the preservation of your own life, you're dedicated to the, to the lives of the, the guys next to you. Right. And so then it becomes more altruistic because now it's less about you and more about them. And because logically you're like, I have to fucking prep. I mean, I would like the things that I would do on a regular cadence to like just torture myself in preparation because, you know, I'm 160 pounds, roughly what I was then. Yeah. Like what, like what, what are you doing in preparation? Just smashing yourself. Like I would put on fucking weight vest and do like hours and hours and hours of like one, just tons of fucking physical exercise and then two every bit of range time inside or outside of the combat zone like you know it's funny because like back in the day crossfit was this huge injection of functional fitness and then it was injected back into the what i would say is the the warrior class of the combat community and it it, it actually i think helped a lot of us because you would run yourself up to like VO2 max with like MRAP or whatever it is. It's competitive. You're fucking torturing yourself. And, but now if you can take kind of that same template and, you know, I remember very distinctly in Afghanistan, in Iraq, both where you, you would take like an MRAP and, you would put on your fucking kit and then you'd go to the range and we had like these 200 pound mannequins that you, know, you would be, you know, what I would say is what I would always do with these standing kneeling prone drills, you know, like standing kneeling prone, standing kneeling prone, standing kneeling prone, like full kit. And then you drag a fucking 180 pound dummy back to another barrier and then you'd use it as cover and then you'd shoot from cover and then you'd standing kneeling prone, standing kneeling prone. And then you'd do like eight count bodybuilders and fucking like just keep your fucking heart pinned to the point where you couldn't get more oxygen but then now you're shooting you know left side you're shooting right side so you're shooting strong hand you're shooting fucking weak hand you're shooting yeah you know you're shooting only left-handed you're shooting you know right-handed you're fucking throwing a frag you're shooting you're like everything is on on the table and especially when you have the full arsenal of you know, now it's belt fed and 40 millimeter and grenades and every, every fucking thing. And then you do that with like vehicles. So you do, you know, tire, just like bullshit tire changing drills. Cause you get fucking hit, whatever it might be. And let's say you got to fucking change a tire out in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Well now I got to do, I've got to move. Maybe I've got to change a tire. Like we'd call them vehicle down, vehicle down drills or whatever it might be where you're, changing a tire but you're doing it vo2 max in full kit while shooting on the range like shooting at targets and then you do the same thing but then you do like cross load drills where you're dragging guys from inside like 180 
pound mannequin from inside a vehicle into the next vehicle. Everything's about like pinning yourself to fucking VO2 max, shooting in the fucking worst position possible and imaginable. So you just like try to logically think about this all the time. And then I'd get up and I'd fucking dry fire, like, like thousands of repetitions of fucking dry fire, left side, right side, fucking dry fire, dry fire, dry fire. And then I'd come home and I would go to a fucking shoot house. I would like live on the catwalk in the shoot house. I would like be either in with the stack running drills because I would take whatever I'd seen downrange, I'd come back and then I'd be in the fucking shoot house. And then I would torture my, I would torture myself. I would torture everybody in that fucking shoot house because survivability, you could absolutely make a direct effect, effect on survivability. And then you take data and you'd overlay that and you'd say, okay, well, this is what we're seeing. This is where people are being shot. This is how they're being shot. How do we modify our SOPs? Which is a super controversial thing. Like when you're talking about modifying a fucking SOP, like that is like, you know, tactics, techniques, you invite the discord and it's not easy. Yeah. But the only way you can prove it out is like, you got to go force on force. You got to put guys in a fucking house and like you, you put them in horrible situations yeah, all the time. And then you run them and you run them more. You know, you run them for sometimes 24 hours. Like the things that we would do at, 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 in right. the places we would go were, were gnarly. Yeah. Like they were, when I say they're gnarly, it was like, you know, pro masks. This is a, a really good um, lesson that I think we, we learned from, a combination of people, but a lot of it was from the Direct Action Resource Center where, you know, Rich had designed this protocol that was, it was nasty. It was like, you're wearing a pro mask, which restricts your breathing automatically. He had piped the entire thing for sound. So you couldn't fucking hear. You could barely breathe. You're going to run full fucking kit. And then we're basically going to run you for, you know, I think the culmination exercise was 36 hours straight. So you're doing CQP for 36 hours fucking straight in a pro mask, full kit in Arkansas humidity and heat while not being able to hear. And you're running dry, you're fucking cross-loading, you're dragging bodies. Like by the end, you you know, you you start when you're taking casualties in these scenarios, you 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 can fictionally obviously kill off half the team and then you're giving them 200 180 pound dummies but you're also giving them like we'd give them you know 100 pound fucking kettlebells to just drag around so they're like carrying fucking kettlebells and carrying people wearing a fucking pro mask they're out of water they're out of fucking mags and it's not ending right you don't index there's no like oh if this guy quits it's done no it's not over yeah it's not over until the second cycle like of daylight and even then we'd run guys even further yeah you know we'd be throwing fucking flashbangs down in there fucking smoke and fucking you name it sometimes you know you're adding not only sims or utm and then you're adding you know you know when you add explosives into the mix and a bunch of other logistics movements into it like just becomes really painful and then you start to um you start to get the feedback too like we got we had a lot of feedback from guys just survivability would man i can't 
I can't believe that what, what the first engage. I hear this all the time. The first engagement, the only thing I could hear in my fucking head was like you yelling at me from a fucking shoot house or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Jeez, man. I should have been paying more attention. <laughs> but it was nasty. Like, and you just got to get nasty. You got to get nasty with yourself. You got to put yourself through the fucking worst shit you can imagine. So it takes an imagination. It takes yeah. creativity. You got to put yourself in the grinder every day and you fucking grind yourself in a moon dust because you're like, I owe it to everybody here. And if I can't, you know, I always kept a, a 400 pound deadlift. Always. Like always. There wasn't a time when I was working where I didn't have a 400 pound deadlift and I couldn't run a six and a half minus, minus mile for three miles sustained. Like I would never deviate from that. Like yeah. there was never a time where I couldn't fucking hit a zone target in less than a second from the 10 yard line. There was never a second that I couldn't fucking engage off a buzzer and like put myself through the ringer and be at VO two max and fucking be hitting targets because you know, that's what it takes. Yeah. You know, you're going to be shitting your fucking pants. You might be injured. Somebody else might be injured. No, I want you to shit your pants. <laughs> and then I'm going to run you through this drill. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got to, so, you know, I, I have to, I know it's like anything else to where, you know, you can get good at it with a certain amount of reputation, but I'm sure there were guys that you interacted with or you instructed that just like didn't, couldn't hack it or yeah you know, didn't really make the standard, but like, what was the thing or what were some of the qualities and the tendencies of the guys that could hack it that allowed them to reach that standard? Well, I think, you know, Mike, I mean, especially as I transitioned over into like GRS and I did a couple other things over there, um, you know, there was that last couple of years I was working out there. Um, the, the guys that always met and exceeded the standard, it was about fucking discipline. Every one of them. Like if you're undisciplined in your behavior, if you could not keep donuts out of your fucking mouth, like, you know, if you, if you couldn't, and you know, there's a lot of guys, we know a lot of those guys, they function very well on, you know, and they did function very well on a half a bottle of Jack. Right. Yeah. But they didn't smoke. They fucking ate right. They were in the gym all the time, but they would just get fucking smashed like three or four fucking how many nights a week or, but they, they could do it. But that was also a younger generation of guy. Um, but every, like uniformly, it was, I think philosophically, if you were to pin it to a very specific philosophy and group of guys, it was the Stoics. Hmm. Like, you know, be humble in their hard work, uh, be disciplined in their life, uh, think about virtue, and then make a firm commitment to themselves and the others around them. And Interesting. But it was uniformly. It was never like the guys that were the biggest braggadocious guys. I mean, the, the best guys that I know that are still at, you know, over there, you'd never fucking know. You'd never know what they did. They'll never, they'll never talk about it. They'd probably right. never be on a fucking podcast. Yeah. Yeah. They're just bad. They're just bad motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like uh, – so – kind of enhance uh your definition like when you when you say discipline um 
it can be a fairly broad term. But like get get a little uh, into the minutia on like how you kind of define that within your your group of peers as you were, you know, kind of in the in the twilight of yeah, this I think operational capacity. I I think the big one was clarity of mind. Um, you know, do you have the discipline to put yourself through the training that you'll need in order to be the best that you can be? Do you have the discipline to do it? What does that mean? It means you can't eat like shit. You can't fucking party every night. You have to keep your head in the game and you have to not only do that, but then you have to go to work triaging all your time and priority prioritizing your effort against what will fucking win i used to always talk about this in the context of like um data just data like yeah you like, would <laughs> yeah like you know i'd have guys that that um, they would spend a ton of time on the pistol range like they just and i, I love shooting pistol it's fun dude it's fun but it's also not realistic it's it's fun and it looks cool and you can beat your buddies and it's like more of like an ego stroke thing versus um you know you, you have to be the best practitioner possible with a fucking rifle and belt belt fed machine gun like you know 40 millimeter will save your fucking life yeah like a grenade launcher will save your fucking life a pistol will but like as far as like the the, the overall statistical engagements, mm. as far as like who actually pulled a fucking secondary on somebody and it's fucking saved their life, it's an emergency ripcord. It's there. You got to be able to shoot it. Yeah. But if you're spending seventy percent of your time on a statistical probability that might be less than one percent, you've disproportionately gone after something and then allocated more time to a statistical anomaly. And, you know, but if you're pulling your pistol, you know, like these are all the, the different things. It's like, if you're pulling your pistol, you have to be able to hit it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but evolve, if you're pulling your pistol and you've never dry fired your tourniquet, meaning like yeah. you've never pulled a tourniquet off your gear and done it one handed and applied it to yourself or your buddy at night while you can't fucking see, yo, you, you got to change your priorities, man. You got to fucking add that shit that you don't want to do that's not that sexy. Like, like, have I ever given a fucking IV in the back of a moving vehicle at night because that's the fucking medic yeah. that, that's, that's down? Have I ever done this? Like, under fucking Petzl, no Petzl, whatever that might be, have I ever done it? Like, and if the dude's fucked up and I can't get one, have I ever done fucking one in a foot? Have I ever done one in a fucking arm? Have I dry fired my tourniquet? Have I, like, there's a litany of different things in there. If we're practicing for the 1% that you have to at least have done to try to check the box that you should be seeking outside of spending 70% of the time on a pistol because you want to fucking beat your buddy. Yeah. So when, when you say the, you know, looking at the data of this stuff, were you looking back at like 
not only your career up to that point, as far as the types of engagements you've gotten in with the certain specific weapon systems and also, you know, talking to other people within that. Like, are, are you like doing 100%. math problems in your head? Like, okay, 10% of the time we need to, we're going to be on crew surf weapons and then, you know, 25% we're going to be in a CQB environment and then, you know, 100%. 30% we're going to be in shoot, move, communicate mode. And you're like breaking all of that down when you're thinking about how to, you know, uniquely craft a training segment in order to, you know, take care of you and your buddies. 100%. Yeah. Like I, I spent years asking guys how many times and I stopped carrying a pistol. Everybody fucking thinks this is stupid as shit, but I stopped carrying a pistol because I couldn't find a person that had actually pulled their pistol. Are you serious? <laughs> I started carrying two more frags. It's <laughs> <laughs> so great. It's so great. It's so controversial. Like yeah. dudes would be like, I can't fucking believe it. I'm like, Hey man, when I meet the guys that have like, when I see that fucking Glock, they've saved their life. But I'll tell you what, I would ask these questions. Like, and I met a couple guys. Like, there's one guy. He's he's a sergeant major in, in uh, 19th group still. I believe his his, his name's Amari's Pusar. He had, and I, I remember because dude, there's only like three guys that I ever met, and I still ask the question to this day. Like, how many times did you transition a pistol in a firefight, and how many times did you actually fucking like have to? Not not because you want to, because there's also the the discretionary guys that are like I've transitioned because I want to. Yeah, it'd be cool, man. Yeah. No, okay. Marius got his fuck. He's got his rifle shot, and so primary was down. So he full transitioned to a 1911, and and he was the I believe he was the second guy to shoot the guy coming into a cave in Afghanistan. He wasn't the first. There was a guy to his left that had smoked the dude. Yeah. So I was like, okay. So I cataloged that. I found three guys. You had like a combat diary. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I was just like looking at data because I was like, fuck, man, like I spent all this time on this thing. Yeah. But I wasn't like throwing frags at the range. Like, I wasn't. But I was like, oh, shit. I need to throw frags on the range. Because yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of guys that I knew. I was like, fuck, dude, like I'm not throwing enough frags. So I was like, we got to throw more frags. Or we got to shoot 40 Mike Mike. Like, we got to shoot 40 Mike Mike. You got it. Like, you got to be able to put that motherfucker in a window on the spot of a dime, yeah. like fucking put it in a window. Like, oh, dude, like when you're good with a fucking 40 millimeter, like a good, like good 40 millimeter dude, like, man, that is, that's a highly lethal fucking system. So it's like it, those little things, you know, like it, it belt feds another whole other one where you like foreign weapons. So AK 47s, you know, PKMs, you know, two M two four nines, the fucking, you know, 50 cal, like all these different systems that you might encounter that you will have to, at some point in time, if you're like in an emergency situation, the, unth the, the thing that we can fucking predict is the environment will be unpredictable. Mm. That is the one thing we can fucking tell. Like it is so chaotic and unpredictable that, you know, it's prepare for the worst, hope for the best, right? It's like, yeah. hopefully this plays out. But if you don't, like great example of that is like, did you have a night sight on your 40 millimeter? Mm -hmm. You did? You had a flip up. Was it like a like a flip up illum uh, 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 tape or something like that? Well, no, sorry. Um, you said 40 and I, I just thought I was thinking sniper rifle. But like um, your, your grenade, grenade, grenade launcher? launcher? No, we just had like any of the dudes that had it just had the little fucking flip up one. Just a little flip up, right? Yeah. That went to like 600 yards or whatever it was. Yeah. And I was like. 
it used to drive me batshit crazy because I was like, you know, we're under NVGs. We Until got we got fucking, the, um, what was the six barrel one? Um, I forget what it was called, but I know that one had, that, that one, one had a, a, a night sight on it. Yeah. But the like under tube one didn't. But even then we like guys were carrying, um, M 79s. They didn't have a loom tape for them at, at yeah. night. So yeah, so I never they, saw it. like never saw a loom. And then the other thing was like, even then under NVGs, trying to find fucking loom tape that's six inches away from your head, you're not going to find it. Because it, you got to run one, like part of the time, like I'd run one tube fucking magnified, one tube open for distance, so I could see up close and also see at distance. So I, I could uh, at least take a look at sights. Yeah. And if it didn't have a laser on it at night, you're just kind of guesstimating like yeah. angle and like trying to figure it out. But it's early shit on the war, like early shit that you're not really thinking about. And then you're like, okay, but how do I solve this problem? Right. So now you're trying to solve the problem for an encounter where you're like, I found myself in a circumstance where I would have loved to have had yeah. fucking something. Yeah. And a 40 mic mic is a good example of this because now you're, you're looking at something and you're shooting something that's not just like line of sight. Like this no. thing that's not just moving exactly. It's a fucking straight. arrow. It's, it's a completely <laughs> it's like, different totally type different. of projectile. Yeah. And like you can put it over walls and you know, you can, it's so much more adaptable so as much a munition yeah. that it requires so much more. And you're not going to get into that unless you're, you know, walking through all these different types of scenarios. Yeah. And that was the thing is like also create scenarios where guys would find holes in their game. Like intentionally try to look, don't build scenarios where you're going to succeed. Build the scenarios you're going to get your fucking yeah. teeth kicked in. And then, and then go, okay, well, because that, that's why the scenario buildup is so important when you're building these scenarios and you're finding guys and you're like, they're finding holes. Cause it, look, you always want to find holes in your game. And then, then having the lack of ego to just own, oh, fuck. Yeah. This is a huge. I I wasn't thinking of this. And tell me, like, you've had enough. You've had enough time now around fucking soft guys and like in the environment. Like, dude, that ain't easy. Easy. Mm -hmm. It's just not easy because you're like, hey, this sucked. You gotta fix these things. Well, it wasn't my fault. It's your fault or somebody else's fault or whatever, right? It's like yeah. then blame game starts, and you're just like, okay, whatever. Um, you know, I I, I came up with this term which was statistical probability of threat, <clears throat> which was, I know the threat is not coming from certain points. So I don't need to look there. Like I can look through it and past it because those are the things that were going to kill us. It was mm -hmm. like yeah, the concrete wall in the fucking alley that doesn't have a fucking hole in it, statistically is not going to fucking, that, that, that's not going to be the threat. The window, you know, two blocks away that can peer into that fucking alley. That's where you need to fucking have your head. Right. And then when you look at a, a 360 degree scenario in a room, let's take a room. Let's say that room has two exits and a window. If there's nothing in the room, the only thing you should be looking at are two exits in the fucking window. That, that's it. Statistical probability of threat. Never put your back to where the threat can be coming from, always put a muzzle, always put something in there. And based on CQB SOPs at the time and protocol, like guys were just kind of like, 
trying to walk the lines and do the prescriptive yeah. I go left, he goes right, and just kind of like I, you know, and we used to do like short corners, long corners, and opposing. It's called opposing corners. And boy, talk about the debates that we used to. Fuck, dude, we, we, I mean, we, we got in fist fights over the shit. Dude, you see, so oh my just, God. You dude. just turned everything into a math problem. Everything. <laughs> everything into a math this problem. This is so like counterintuitive to what most people would <laughs> assume, like how to be successful in a combat environment like <laughs> turn it into a math problem turn it into a math problem like in like limited penetration versus opposing corners with small man team cqb it just is what it is you can't you, you, you know, like i've had the debate i'm sure there's like guys that are listening to this you know but i mean i would i would go out to la and fucking like talk to their swat teams and do ride-alongs and like how are you guys doing it? Like, I don't know how you guys are doing it. Like, how how does a cop come in to a scenario where he might be in the fucking worst place in town and he might be one guy? How do you do it? Yeah. Like, so it became like the thing. That, that was my, that was the problem I worked on all the time. That was the only thing I thought about. How do I do one man CQB? <laughs> that was it man that's all like like it was like completely and 100 percent consumed by one and two man cqb that yeah it. it's the only thing i thought about for years yeah and if you had to surmise that kind of this eliminate statistical probability of threat was like like what was the mantra or like the the bullet points <clears throat> on that um well Speed is your security, right? Because we have a small team. Like when you when you can't flood a target, because that's typically what guys like you mm. flood a fucking target. Mm. If you can't flood a target, if you don't own if you don't own the outside, that's the other issue. Like if you don't own the outside and you're just two guys that are working their way through an urban environment after they've been like blown off the fucking street and they're just trying to E and E, then you got to get out of fucking get out yeah. of the kill zone. Or I got to go in. Like, I don't have an option. I can't wait for somebody to come yeah. save me, right? I got to go. I got to go find this guy, and I got to get him out. I got to do link-up procedures in a high-threat environment, quite possibly in a gunfight with, like, a friend that I might might not have ever seen before. Mm. And it could be in a foreign fucking country in a, in a city like Libya or wherever, or a country, not city, but, a, you know, a city that I'm unfamiliar with where everything is shit, and now I've got to move across two city blocks by myself, moving through a different target, <laughs> yeah. doing fucking CQB. And it's not doing CQB in the sense of what people are like, this isn't hostage rescue. What I'm talking about is like direct to threat, eliminate threat, get said guy the fuck out of country. Okay. Well, dude, that is a really complex problem. Yeah. And like, it's all consuming. And there's, everybody has an opinion, by the way. Sure. So- like the, the the reader's digest of this is like you got to be able to fucking move fast, cover down on what matters. Because if you're doing a prescriptive SOP where you're like, I have to fucking pull my barrel all the way into that corner, then I'm gonna you know scan 270 degrees. I'm gonna walk to the other corner, and then I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. It's like you don't have time. Like I understand there could be a guy behind that fucking chair. But the chair behind, like the, the, the dead space behind the chair, it has, I can see it in the corner of my eye. I understand that there's quite possibly only four square feet of room for somebody. So how many people can fit in four? How many people can fit in four fucking four square feet? Like 
very limited. And yes, I understand there could be, you know, a, a, a midget from J Tajikistan in there. I got it. <laughs> yeah. But it's not a statistical probability of threat. So right. you have to go, okay, where is the threat coming from? It's coming from the places I can't see or the things that I can see where it's, if we're inside this room where you got to go to the next room, the next room, the next room, then it's, and Yusisak, I think, did the data on it. It was like the majority of the casualties had, had actually come from um, adjacent spaces. So it wasn't the the room that you were in where you're taking casualties. Currently, it was adjacent spaces. Interesting. So they were making penetration. They were penetrating, and, and they would, and when I when we would penetrate, we get sucked into a target, and then we weren't necessarily sucked into the three square inch box in the long hallway where you could you could find a fucking muzzle that was gonna sneak in and shoot you. So you're like looking at this fucking wall when you should have your muzzle directly pointed down the fucking hallway getting ready to engage somebody. And which speaks to what you were just saying, right? As far as <clears throat> speed is your greatest ally. Speed is your greatest ally. It's like being able to assess complex and, and, and this is this is a geometry problem. Like it, it's it, like when you look at this, like buildings and anything else, like it's just geometry and physics, right? Well, I mean, run, one of the same, but when you, the uh, geometric shapes that everything is built on, like there's only so many places that human psychology tactics and equipment will allow them to fucking shoot from the Kool-Aid man. ain't going to come blowing through the fucking wall with an AK. Like it isn't going to happen. So yes, can it happen? Fuck yeah, dude. But like guys would, you know, debate this stuff, and you're like, man, you're you're preparing for, you know, you're you're preparing an SOP for a lightning strike. It's it's not. You're preparing for the smallest amount versus where you should be preparing for the greatest amount. So, identifying the greatest amount of threat, moving through a problem with speed because speed is your security, which is a fundamental of of small unit tactics, and you can adjust speed, right? So, you can flex down and go up based on the circumstances, but you have to understand when you can flex up and you when you have to, when you have to slow down, speed up. It's not a consistent variable within the problem. You can't just say, this is how fast I'm going to go through the entire thing. You can't, you have to flex up and flex down. Mm. It's all based on angle awareness and statistical probability of threat. It's all based on that. It can't, it can't be based on anything else because it doesn't, it, it as long as, you know, projectiles are the main uh, threat to the warfighter within an urban environment. Like there's only so many places they can come from and human physical limitations play into that. Yeah. Now, if there's a barbarian with a spear right. in the other room, <laughs> right. Something a little bit different. You know Might be I mean? a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, fuck dude. Like, sure. I could prepare for a flaming hammer. That's great. Yeah, I could, but it's not not going to happen now, and it all changes once you're in the mountains. So, so like I'm as I'm envisioning um, going through an exercise like this or, or doing this real thing that you're in some type of weird flow state of essentially math problems. Like you're answering questions and you're doing math problems as fast as you possibly can. Essentially, that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, you're doing a, a complex. It's complex problem solving, split decision making. But also, you don't really have time to think either. Because I, and that's that's part of like, like, uh, it's it's funny because most of the guys that I know that were really really good at CQB were all like ADHD guys. Yeah, their mind just 
thinks faster. And that's part of like uh like they can think four dimensionally in a sense where they're like solving the current problem that the, they're the, physically in and then the problem they're gonna be have to solve in 10, 20 seconds or whatever yeah. that is. Is that what you mean? Well, yeah, because they're just I think CQB lends itself well to people with ADHD because I think their minds are running they they want more information and they want it to come in at a faster clip and they also need to move their bodies. They like to solve the problem with their body. Mm. So when you think about kids, I'm, obviously I think about my kids and their development all the time. And I think about how the education system gets it wrong because I've seen so many talented, bright and amazing men that are incredible at CQB and they're fucking some of the most talented people on the planet when it comes to solving a complex geometrical problem with bullets in the bullet geometry yeah like they're they're savants like i've met fucking savants and if you tried to sit them at a desk and and told them that they were going to be living a sedentary intellectual existence for the rest of their life they would say fuck you but they are really fucking talented people and i think they can see things at a different clip hmm. they can they, finally the move finally the world is moving at a speed that they're like this is my speed hmm. got it this is my speed and i could see it man I, I i have hundreds if not thousands of repetitions in in a shoot house watching guys training guys and guys that were there there were guys that were very analytical and they would over analyze and they were slow they couldn't process things fast enough they just couldn't do it and they would just almost stop they were moving so slow that they couldn't keep up with it with the environment they just they just weren't good at it it wasn't that they weren't good at do at soldiering or war fighting it was just like that thing yeah that thing is built for guys that are like they are running on a different frequency they are running at a super fast speed and they're smart. Like that was the other thing. Like, <laughs> cause you could be talking about a guy and he'll like throw out, you know, proper weights and measures for, you know, data sheet or, you know, explosives or whatever. Like, you know, you want to talk about math and you want to talk about like a math problem when it comes to shooting or explosives or anything that they can apply with these hands. They're all over it, dude. All over it. You sit them down and ask them to do, you know, a, a, a complex math problem at a fucking desk. They're gonna be like, "Man, I'm, I'm good. Man. Yeah, I'm good." Um, so it's it's also like genetics, right? There's there's also guys that are geared for it. That's just it's just genetics. They're just they're physically they're they're moving with what I would say is the the the, the grace of a you know and professional athlete and with the you know the with the lack of fear of somebody that's in you know moto sports because i mean those guys don't give a fuck half the time right they're like yeah i mean you shit. go you go for a ride with pastrana and you're like the dude's the dude's either got something extra or he's missing he's missing he's missing yeah. some of the thing that is uh holds a lot of other people back to be able to operate at doing that thing at mm -hmm. that speed at, at that capability like i think the physical like a physical person in the context of like an nfl 
And these guys move with like the grace and athleticism of somebody in the NFL, but they also have the capacity to solve complex geometrical problems and move through it with the lack of fear of somebody that's riding professional motocross or something else. Like yeah. it, it's wild. Yeah. When you, when you see some of these dudes and, and like, <laughs> and it's so funny cause there's like, I'm sure there's like, so like there's, there's like a, um, there's just not a lot of guys that have seen a lot of CQB. There's just not like, and it's just such a weird, weird group of people who are like, Oh man, I've done a lot and I've seen a lot. And I'm, it, you start to learn a lot about the, the other thing about it is if you start to learn a lot about just like the way humans interact with each other, like it, throughout combat environments where it's like human psychology and war, as far as like war psychology and what's happening on the battlefield and how those two things are interacting to try to find holes. Like if they're expecting me to do this based on the fight, what should we do? Mm. So then well, let's apply something fucking crazy, man. Like, yeah. like throw a fuck, throw something fucking crazy in there. Let's see if we can like, you know, take them for a ride, like show them something different. Like, you know, I mean, that's, I honestly, I think, you know, air support obviously is elevation, but it's also a factor that is relatively unexpected in a gunfight early on, for sure. When you apply air support, when you, you're essentially applying, you know, Viking God power, from the sky and say deleting people on the other side they're like whoa <laughs> now we're not like just engaging on the ground with each other now you have the ex this external variable that is can reach and touch them any point in time and they will not fucking see it coming depending on where it is yeah and someone who can coordinate air crew serve weapons guys on the ground snipers may not be good at doing cqb correct Correct. One one hundred percent. Yeah. And you know, and the other the other guys like, you know, the guys that are really good. I mean, and there's all these different environments, but you might have guys that are really good at, you know, training guys and leading indige and like taking them into the mountains or into the middle of, you know, Africa or doing all this like that might be their thing. And that is their, you know, that that's their Sistine Chapel. Mm. That's what they're meant to do. Yeah. But they might not be meant to like clear buildings that's yeah. why like delta force and seal team six that's why it's hyper selective it's why there's very few people in those units because not everybody's geared for that shit yeah yeah not everybody's geared to you know live in the middle of nowhere and run an indige force and you know eat eat like shit and you know uh train guys either i mean i know plenty of guys that just they don't want to do that they don't want to go to war with a bunch of guys like right that. So Evan Hafer, you know, son of a logger from Idaho, where, when, how did you get to the point where you're like, I need to look at data and you started to use data survivability. And, yeah. It's, it's numbers. Right. But like, that's not most people's like first course of action to, to start looking at data. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think it was like truly based on like uh, the evolution of training and then under trying to understand that that's just the way, I mean, honestly, that's just the way my brain works. Like it's just the way it works, which is if we're, 
training and how do you develop a training um, cycle that is effective, you have to prepare for what we'll call them from top to bottom. We, these are the things that we, we, we have to do. So the mission essential task list, and then you have to prepare for things. And then when you're building in different training scenarios, you have to just look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. Like how else are you going to be able to prove it out or understand it? You know, like, like a, a legitimate airborne infill hasn't been conducted for, I mean, just cause it was 89 you know, we did a few Iraq and Afghanistan, but I mean, it's a great example. It's like got a bunch of dudes jumping out of airplanes all the time, like fucking breaking legs and tearing shit up. And it's like, but how often have we used this? And I, I'm all into heritage and I love airborne ops. And I'm, I'm not like discrediting them in any stretch of the imagination, but I'm like, I used to always think about it. Like you're risking people, you know, injury to themselves and the combat effectiveness of the unit over something that is unrealistic utilization as a form of infill. Whereas we should be like getting it on. Yeah. You should be getting it on. Well, how do you get it on? Okay, well now that's a whole other thing, right? So it's like, depending on your combat environment, where are you going and all these other things, like now you have to triage your time and develop a training calendar against what is the most realistic scenario that you're going to find yourself in? You know, if you're doing a lot of, you know, overland move to contact essentially in Afghanistan, it's a totally different training cycle, totally different environment than it is. Like I'm preparing to do urban-based small unit tactics that are going to be, you know, flat relatively, you know, the, the infill cycles might be like 4K offsets or something like that where – I'm moving in on a target, but I'm going to be, I'm going to spend a ton of time in vehicles. What vehicles are they? Like what type of weapon systems are they? Like who's doing what Right. versus, you know, if you're going into an environment, it's obviously a consideration of yeah. all these things. Yeah. Well, I think that's just such a unique, interesting takeaway from this that can transcend uh, a combat environment or a CQB environment. As far as I have a problem, whether that be in, business or what vehicle I need to take, uh, across country or whatever that is to like get to this point where you condition your brain towards, uh, if not the first step, one of the first steps is looking at data, like an input of information in order to make a correct decision that you can then condition yourself into preparing to do that in all these different ways, shapes and forms in your life. Like, I just don't feel like a lot of people, have that mentality when it comes to problem solving. Well, and I think, like I think one of the things that that it it did teach me was like everything is everything is expendable except for the human. So it doesn't matter. Like we'll fucking burn that thing in place. Like fucking torch that building, burn that car, like tear it all down. Who gives a flying shit? Everything is expendable except for the humans. Like that's it. Doesn't matter. So like the team is everything. Like the team is everything. The equipment is a facilitator to the conductive, like mission success is not solely based on the equipment and you can go without some of it. Like, I mean, yes, yes, you have your mission essential tasks, you have your mission essential equipment, but the men are the most important piece to it. It is the most important. It is the paramount building block. It is the cornerstone of what's happening because if you don't have the right people 
you can have all the fucking greatest shit you want. You're still not going to get it done. Like you're not. But with with a handful of guys and less than the best equipment, you can do a hundred X. There's I, I love like these some of these stories about like like um, executive outcomes or somebody back in the day. Um, you know they they essentially stabilized Sierra Leone with a hundred guys. What the fuck? <laughs> like, you know, the, the initial push through Afghanistan was done with like 100, 100 guys in October. It was like the Northern Alliance and a bunch of CIA and soft guys. Yeah. I mean, going all the way back through history, like how, how did the less yeah. beat, beat the more? Like how, how, do, how do you, like, you know how many battles have been fought in history that haven't been equal numbers against? Oh, yeah. I mean, Thermopylae, that's the, probably the prime example, right, of like, I mean, 300 was made from that like you know gates of fire is probably i mean it's a, it's a great book i'd highly recommend reading it but you know from um that lesson is that everything is expendable like when i say that it's like for mission success you align yourself around the mission you say okay this is the mission success criteria and then everything goes into it but if we need to like sell a vehicle or fucking burn one down or shove shit off a cliff in order to make it happen great you can't have an emotional context to anything material because it doesn't matter and nothing can deter you from success so i think a lot of people and i'm, I'm referring to business in this circumstance they get so attached to like w whether it's wealth or which is a which is just a means of measuring business success, like because it's, it's dollars in, dollars out. But they get comfortable. They get you know with with some form of success, they get they get comfortable, they get complacent, and they get attached to all this shit. It's like if your goals are different, if mission success criteria is different, which is you know growing a business for a hundred years, or you know just having smaller, more attainable, less materialistic driven goals, your success criteria is easier because then nothing really matters except for the people, like your family, your business. Those things are people. Like your family is not your house. Your family is, you know, it's like home is where your heart is. Sounds like a Pinterest <laughs> fucking meme, but it's like those, that's what matters. Like I'll shut the door of my house tomorrow to fucking throw a match in it. We'll never think about it again as long as I got my family. I don't care about anything in there. Yeah. Don't care. And so I think being less attached to the things and more attached to success criteria and the, the people that you're doing with, that's probably the most important thing. Because, yeah. like, you know, the, the mission, like, hey, man, like we could get all heady and philosophical about what, what we're doing. But at the end of the day, like I got to work with a bunch of really, really great men, like great people. I got the, these incredible experiences, and I never talk about like the gear. I don't give a flying fuck what we used. I couldn't even tell you half the shit we used. Who cares? It's it's just crap. I can't tell you about like Jim Atkins, the former, you know, the former director of Special Activities Division. That was one of two guys that were fired for Iran Contra that I got to work in Sulaymaniyah with for two years. 
I can tell you about that guy. Tell you how cool that motherfucker was. I can tell you that, you know, he was a Mac V saw guy back in the day. He was like an SF guy. He was a Vietnam guy. Went to work for the agency. I, I can tell you, you know, the story about how they ran out of, you know, bombs. So they loaded a bunch of cows in a plane and were dropping fucking cows on commies in South America. That's cool. Beef bomb. Beef bomb. Right? <laughs> That's cool. Like I can tell you the adaptability in these guys. I can tell you how incredible like they were because that those are the things that matter. Like yeah. I I don't care like oh well, we had really cool uh, you know level 7 fucking beamers and you know yeah. hopped up fucking cars or whatever. I can tell you about the guy that I named Circus Bear that are you know, golden bean coffee after. I can tell you about that guy. I can tell you he's like one of the coolest motherfuckers I've ever been around. And they, I, I love him like a brother. I can tell you about him. Can't tell you his name, but I can tell you about him, right? Yeah. Like, you know, one of my good friends, I was just texting him back and forth with him the other day. I actually called him because I was like, I, and I, I don't talk to this guy. I talk to him like three, four times a year. And Bugsy is his call sign. And uh, and it's so funny because Mike Glover and I were like trying to remember a guy. We're we're in Mexico. And we're trying to remember what this guy's name was. He died of a heart attack a few years ago. And I just like called called my buddy. <laughs> I haven't talked to him for fuck, dude, a year. He's like, "What's up, fucker?" <laughs> and that was it. I was like, "Oh man, I fucking I fucking love these dudes. Like they're so good. They're just they're fucking funny. They're." dedicated they're they're mission driven they're they're just like god man like growing up in that like as a kid like i was a kid growing up with these guys like working around these these giant humans and they were just in fucking they were incredible yeah just living just trying to fill out their combat boots man it's like trying to figure out like how do i live up to a standard yeah and, and whether or not you do it or not that's not the point yeah well you hear so many guys make this statement like I miss the boys. I miss being around the guys. And there's so many layers to that that sentiment and that statement. And the the deeper you get into that is that that individual, uh, we have been in these environments in which you exist with 100% confidence that that person not only has gone through hell to exist in this, you know, really chaotic environment that you're going to find yourself in, but they 100% have your back and the capabilities for you to be successful and potentially save your life. And that, that dichotomy of existence with a group of individuals who have gone through hell with each other is so empowering for each one of those individual people that all of these people who are one man and are only capable of so much are, are all of a sudden amplified in their capabilities in their existence. And of course you miss that environment. And, and I think it's, it's a good thing to remember, like, Oh, we still have to like pursue that in the sense of like, we still have to find a team or like build our family units that way to where there's like this, this strife that, that exists that we kind of have to create. We have to train ourselves to, to have the confidence in each other, knowing that if we go through this kind of hardship, we're going to be empowered and be greater than the whole and have a capability that we didn't even know we could have on, 
after going through something extremely difficult. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I I, I think about that with like family. Yeah. Right? I think about that. Well, that's the, family. that's the next step, yeah. you know, like, well, it's like, well, I can't be with the boys and we're not going down range anymore. It's like, you don't have to do that. Right. Like you have to take though that ethos of what you were going through and you have to figure out a way to reapply it. Like that, that, that is growth. It's, and I get it, man. I, I mean, it's hard. It's hard for everybody. Like we, we're, we're having that con We've had this conversation for 10 years. Yeah. It's hard, man. It, it is. It was like a big reason why this company was yes. started. That's why it was founded. It was like, you know, like that, that's it. Like, it's like, Hey, have a mission and a sense of purpose outside of yourself where everybody's aligned to, to you know, generate something bigger and give back to the community. Okay, cool, man. Like I want to support products and people that are aligned like me, whether that's like, you know, ethos or essence or politics, whatever that might be. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, growing up in a team room and feeling what it's like to work on that type of a team is it's something I, I I think it's really difficult for most of us to to truly put words to. I've been trying to put words to it for the last, like really been trying to put words to it for the last couple of months. Like why, like why is it so special? Like why is it so meaningful? You know, I think when you have a collective essence, you have an individual and a collective purpose. When you've been stripped of of artificial identity. Right, so you've been stripped of artificial identity, and you're part of something bigger than yourself. You yeah. have individual and collective essence and purpose, and then you're collectively solving problems and going through hell at the same time. That creates um, it creates this unity that is really deep. Like it, it's. Like, you know, we, we can feel, I wasn't in Sangin, but I can feel it. I know, I know what it, I know what it was like. I wasn't in fucking Iwo Jima. I didn't hit the beaches in Normandy. But I got a pretty good understanding as to the salt water splashing over the sides of the Higgin boat, the, 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 how fucking cold and scared you probably were as you climbed down off the fucking, you know, rope ladders of the boats and fucking got into those, got into those Higgins boats. And it's, I, you can, I can feel the metal on the Thompson or the M1 Grand. Like, I, I my mouth is fucking dry. Like, I'm fucking shivering out of fear and I'm cold as shit. And I'm going to get in this fucking water as like the entire world is ripping apart. I kind of know what that feel. I know I wasn't there, but I can fucking feel it. Like gives me goosebumps thinking about it. And that is the collective shared experience that we can all relate to and go, man, that fucking, that was hard. <laughs> like, you're a fucking hard motherfucker, you know? Or and, and when you say that, it's not just, you know, it's not a book. It's not a movie. It's 
you know, you're, you know, when you pull your tongue off the top of your mouth because you realize for whatever reason there's not been any saliva in it for fucking 10 minutes or like, like, yeah. like yeah, you know, like, oh my God, like, because you've been so engaged and immersed in what's going on and the whole world is coming apart. Everything around you is so fucking chaotic. It's a mess. And it, it's, it's that 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 when we sit down with guys and we look across the table and we're like god man like like i love you like you're you're my brother it's like a family so when we see these guys that are it doesn't matter dude if they're 90 years old and we know what they did they pitched themselves out of a plane pitch bark pitch black dark in 1940 to land in a to land into a drop zone that was flooded by the Nazis to go liberate Europe. I have an immense amount of empathy and respect for those guys, just as I do you, just as I do the other guys that have been with us, because they're my family. Like they're they're my family. Like I'm not saying that from the discounting it. Like my kids. You know, my wife, my father, you know, like, like my mother, but it, it's different. It's, it's different than blood. It's something that's like, um, it, it almost feels like we're, we're one. Like it's, they're part of me and I'm part of them. And like, I miss, I, you know, I, I, I should say, I don't miss that. I don't miss the combat. I don't miss it at all. Like, there's like not a day that goes by that I'm like, oh man, I wish I was in the mix now, man. And to be fair, like we've been able to replicate a pretty decent team room environment here. So I, I have list the team, I've missed the team room less than most, but I couldn't imagine getting out and going to work for Goldman Sachs or I, I, fuck, I don't know. I don't know where yeah. guys go to work. Yeah. Like, where you have no, you, you don't have your family. <laughs> like, God, man, like the, like the stones on some of these guys that, that succeed. That, that's uh, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, I mean, that's you just described the, the beauty and the vision of America, the, the perfection of unity. That, that's what that flag is meant to symbolize. Is this? I am, one of many, and many are one, and together they are strong. That's the evolution of humans across time leading up to this. That's what America was. It was this vision of, of trying to touch perfection through unity to be, to be free and to be together and have strength through individuals. And that's what is so wonderful about service to that flag is that you get access to that. You get access to, to this thing that you feel like you can transcend time and space and you can touch and have visions of what other people did and the heroics and the things that they were able to accomplish and draw strength from that to, and draw power from that and bring it now into the presence. And if we could just keep keep that idea mm. and, and that understanding that that's truly what we're in the midst of. It's so easy to get distracted by everything now, but like 
we have to remind ourselves like that was the, like it was bigger than all of us, but everybody can be a part of that and get so convoluted with all these distractions now that it's easy to forget those things sometimes, but like that's, that's, that was exactly what you wanted when you raised your right hand. You're like, I'm sacrificing some freedom to go be a part of this thing. And that thing provides back. It's a perfect balance of being a citizen. Mm-hmm. And I, I just pray that there's so many more generations to come that like understand that and, and want to participate in that thing. Cause like when I, when it works, it's, it's a beautiful thing for our species. Yeah, I think that I mean that, that I think that's probably one of my biggest concerns is that I think people have lost their way at the meaning of or they've lost their way. Like they're not looking to that flag. Like you know, stars and bars, the red, white and blue, like that's the true unifying factor in the beauty, the grace of evolution, the search of perfection, the civility uh, the civilian population working together to achieve something that exemplifies freedom. And there's so many people that I think they miss the opportunity, like serve their country. Not, and I don't mean this by the fact like everybody doesn't have to jump gun down and join the Marine Corps. I'm saying like they miss the opportunity to serve their, their country some capacity and as it layers in together we all have these strange and eclectic and eclectic desires or ideas the the driving philosophy has to be like how do we develop and evolve humanity in search of something that possibly could be as close to perfect as we could make it. And they miss it. You know, I mean, I saw something today. It was like, um, <clears throat> you know, it was like some guys had posed in front of a jet with like their rainbow flag. And it was like, and Sean had said something about it. Like, I, I remember when it was cool to put the American flag, like hold it with your buddies in front of <laughs> aircraft. And I'm like, yeah, that's the flag. That's the only one we need. Like you don't like there. <laughs> that's cool. You guys, yeah, and, and I'm not saying like, you know, that's the purpose of freedom, right? Everybody has their own ideas and they're, but when you're discrediting the main idea, which is we're free, we have an amazing opportunity and a combined sense of purpose to build something as close to perfect as possible. And when you're propelling the ethos of where you put your genitalia ahead of that, you're missing the fucking point. Yeah. Like I, I would, I think I would even be okay. Like if every time you saw that flag, like there was a, there's a stars and bars above it. <laughs> like, it, like if you do whatever you want with that flag, just put that other one above it, put it up above it because you understand that you can have that one because of that other one. Like I, I would <laughs> it's, be it's like, the whole oh, thing. I'd be like, okay. Yeah. I'd be like, okay. Have, have every, have any mall. Sure. You know, put it, put 20 of them below it. Yeah. What, whatever. But the one that matters, like that's the one, 
Like I was having this conversation yesterday because we were talking about the flag on the front of the backs and um, it's flat because it represents the IR flag on the side of a uniform. Or, mm. And we're talking about how important that flag is and what the true purpose of it is. And when you see it on the back of a, of a tailgate of a truck or you see it on a toolbox or you, you know, see it on whatever, boat, helmet, whatever it is, you think, at least I do, I'm like, I probably have something in common with that guy. You know, I probably get a, I, 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 I probably share a cup of coffee with that person. You yeah. know, that's yeah. all right. That yeah, makes yeah. it feel good. Yeah, it makes it feel good. Yeah. You're like, yeah, you know, it's, it's like, maybe they get it. Yeah. Yeah, they probably do. Yeah. You know, it means something. I think that's where, like I, you know, that was the first thing. New house, new flag, new flagpole. And I, you know, I, 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 I really, really, I don't, I don't look back, you know, I don't look back and say, oh man, back in the day, you know, I, I think of the future and I think we will know we're winning when more people start putting the flag in front of their house again. Like it doesn't have to be a flagpole. It's just like a, the flag. Yeah. It means something. Yeah. And I don't think that enough people like have an attachment to that and understand that what makes it great is you and that you are deciding to fly it, that you are putting your power into it. Like it as a symbol, what gives it strength is the unity through the people saying that this is a part of me. Like it's a, it's in theory and in concept, like it's such a beautiful thing. Like the, like you just think about the name, like the United States, like individual freedom united. Like it just even sounds cool, (laughs) man. Like it sounds so rad, like (laughs) buy into it. Like I don't understand like why you can't buy into it. Like go someplace else. See and it. like see that they that's not individual unification. Like it's such a beautiful thing. And like all you gotta do is like go someplace else and be like, fuck, get me back. Get me back into the United okay. States. It, it doesn't represent a kingdom, it doesn't represent a monarchy, it doesn't represent a fascist. It represents like the people. Like we we pontificate about all kinds of different the political problems, but in its ethos. It's a it's a beautiful idea. Uh, I mean, I'm biased, and you are too, obviously. But I I think we 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 often as a country we miss the opportunity to just tell people it's okay. Yeah. Have have a different opinion. It's great, but let's not forget. This is the like the beauty of us having all these different ideas and opinions and our freedom to go out and talk about them and ultimately decide and debate. That's what this thing's all about. You can't do that in a lot of places. You can't even do that across the border, dude. Yeah. You go to Canada, you go to Mexico, you go to Canada, they're going to like shut down your business because you didn't get a vaccine or something, right? They're going to do all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're, they're, being overtaken by policies that may have been fit for, 
you know, 40, 50, 100 years ago, but it's not working currently. Um, and yeah, we should be asking ourselves this question, like, is America the greatest country in the world? And maybe we need to look at the data set on that <laughs> yeah. to like make a, a good conclusion. But I will say the idea of America is the best thing in the world. Uh, 100%, like 100%. Like it, it, we, we, which I always think is funny because I'm like, I, I love the fact California is like a weird liberal state. It's cool. Oh, why? That's uh, California is crazy. I'm like, it, you know what? That's cool. You know what? Because there's 49 states you can live in outside of that one. It's all right, man. Like the United States, it's fine. Like if yeah. California wants to be California, that's great. I love that. Let, I was let it be California. Stationed in Camp Pendleton, California, outside of a little rad surf town that had like fucking rad IPAs and pizza. You know what I mean? Like I love that. That's a part of my history. I think that's fucking cool, man. Yeah. And I like Texas. Texas is, I mean, and obvious. you know, like this is what's fucking great about this place is like the individual unification that like everybody can find their fucking home in. It's beautiful. It's fucking beautiful. beautiful. Well, that was awesome. That was fucking great. That was fucking great. Yeah. It's fucking American. Yeah. Let's fucking go get some American flag stickers and put them in the back of the trucks. <laughs> People don't quite understand what the point of this stuff is. One, it's fun. It has to be fun. So if you don't like it, Thank you.